Hey, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Greg Bendy and your host. And today we have a very interesting musician joining us, uh, someone that's become a friend of the podcast. And as I've become a friend of, of his podcast, he's a drummer, he's an educator, he's a podcaster, he's from the UK, and he is Andy Edwards. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Greg. You Are you good? <laughs> I'm okay, actually. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm okay. Yes. A lovely you... day here, nice and sunny. I can hear the birds outside, and uh, been uh, doing a few YouTube videos this morning. So uh, it's a it's a nice day today. Well, people who follow your podcast know that you're you're doing quite a lot of videos and putting out a lot of interesting content, and we're certainly going to get to that today. Uh, what part of England are you in, Andy? I live in a, a town called Kidderminster, which is about half an hour south of Birmingham. And Birmingham's right in the centre of um, Great Britain, United yeah. Kingdom. And it's the centre of a lot of, you know, historic music making, you know. So I, I grew up surrounded by um, the bands. So, you know, there'll be one band that would come from one town up the road and then another from, from another town up the road. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, not so much a music scene. When I came up, there was no music colleges or teachers or anything like that. I was completely on my own. But uh, and it, and, I, and it was unknown to me as well what I was actually growing up in. You know the fact that bands like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Judas Priest, and then also Duran Duran, UB40, um, Pop Will Eat itself, um, the Wonder Stuff. Um, Nentatomic Dustbin, they're literally all from just the next town up, you know, and then you had Slade and, you know, there's a whole, the Moody Blues, it just goes on and on and on, Yellow. Um, and, you know, so as as I uh, entered, you know, I was playing drums and I sort of entered into the beginnings of my music career, I then started to cross paths with a lot of these people that started off as heroes. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a music place. There's a lot of music history here. Yeah, I mean, I know when you say Birmingham, uh, so many people immediately associate that with Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah, what, we, is, it, that. what is it about that area, do you think, that uh, gives birth to so much intense music, not just sort of, you know, popular folk music, but a kind of uh, almost uh, renegade kind of attitude? It's it's like an industrial town. Birmingham's an industrial town, and then next to Birmingham is a is a place called the Black Country, and the Black Country was called the Black Country by Queen Victoria because it was such heavy industry. And I think there's the the equivalent in the states, isn't there, where these heavy industrial towns seem to produce a lot more rock based music, you know. Um, and uh, you know the guys in Black Sabbath, they were they were working in those factories, I think. You know, because um, Tony Iommi famously cut off his fingertips working in a some heavy industry up in Birmingham. So I think there's that. Um, and also on the circuit, there was um, uh, a lot of venues. You know, they, they, in my town, Kidderminster, there, there was a venue. My, this is quite a small town, but our venue hosted The Who. It hosted The Rolling Stones. We've had Radiohead play here. We've had um, U2 play here, <laughs> all in in my town and I can remember once reading a, um, a biography or autobiography actually with Georgie Fame, you know, Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. And he, he mentioned that there was a number of venues outside London up here 
that bands would always come up to. You know, I think they just built a motorway up so, you know, bands could come up and play here. So I think it's 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 a mixture of those two things. Um, it is in, it's an incredible history that I'm absolutely fascinated by, to be honest. Like, I, can't, I can never get to the bottom of, of, of why this little country has played such a huge part in the history of what is an American form, rock and roll. Rock, I mean, I believe that rock music, as opposed to rock and roll, was pretty much invented um, here, you know, in England. I think uh, there's a strong argument that, um, you know, the, the, the idea of rock and heavy rock is almost like a British idea. I think starting mm. with Cream and those type of bands. And that's interesting because a lot of people point to Bay Area groups like Blue Cheer as being the beginning of heavy music. And I know that a lot of American bands were looking to to England and a lot of uh, English bands were looking to America. So it's really kind of... Uh, oh, without doubt, they were looking to America, without doubt. Because I, I know a lot of these guys and I've talked about it. It's a really interesting relationship. I think... What's really interesting is this idea of of Jim Marshall, who's a who was a drummer and had a drum shop, and then started putting guitar amps in there and thought, well, I'll build an amp. And from what I've read, I don't know how how apocryphal this is, but a very young Pete Townsend was going down there because I think his friend was having drum lessons, and he said, why don't you build us an amp? And he said, well, what do you want? And he said, well, I want a hundred watt amp. With a gain on it, and 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 it, you know, so Marshall invents this amp, and I think that was the the X factor in in London in the early sixties is that they had the Marshall amps, and so when you look at bands like you know Graham Bond and the Blues Breakers, which is is going back sixty three sixty four, yeah. uh, you know, which is then feeding into the Kinks and the Stones, I think there's an argument there's pretty there's a pretty heavy sound going on in London. 63 64 which is is before blue cheer and iron butterfly and those types of bands so yeah i i think that the idea of heaviness definitely originates in this country and so it, when you start to name heavy bands it's very hard to not name a british one at that period isn't it you know the the and, the, and then you've got hendrix coming over as well i think that's a Hen, hendrix coming here and then john mcgoughlin going <laughs> going over to you <laughs> those are two pivotal moments for me yeah and, and my audience who knows your your work knows that you're a historian and i always like speaking with people that can quote dates and and facts to to make their point and certainly you're one of those folks and it's it's not just a, a general sort of thing it's the you know let's look at what happened when and mm -hmm. folks who follow my site, bendyandmusic.com, will know that I have a uh, timeline of all the progressive music per year, starting in 66 with the, with the beginning of Revolver and Freak Out, and looking at that trend as it goes year by year, 70, 71, 72, all of that. Um, because I just needed to get it straight. I need to, to, to know what came before what in order to know how something developed how something came to be and you strike me as that kind of guy as well but when when i was a kid coming up you know and you're listening to sort of just pop music on the radio and you love it you know i i, I realized i loved really loved pop music in fact the track that fascinated me when i was 11 years old was the track pop music by m 
I, I heard that and I absolutely love it. And I, and I, if I put it on now, I, it does seem to encapsulate everything I like about music, all the forms, all wrapped up in one track. Uh, so that sort of piqued my interest. And then at that time, which was late 70s, early 80s, it was a new wave of British heavy metal. Again, a very British thing that was going on. And those bands, that they, they seem different it was this idea of it was different to what all my friends liked that was in the charts you know bands like iron maiden and angel witch venom all those bands i absolutely loved so i i started to listen to those and from there i sort of moved out to a sort of rainbow white snake and it was a it was a journey that i didn't know looking back it was a lovely journey you know so rainbow white snake and then all oh, deep purple black sabbath led zeppelin and um then from Led Zeppelin to Yes, Yes to Mavish Nostra. And then I, I think when I heard the Mavish Nostra, I'd, I'd been looking for something up until that point. And I remember thinking, oh, I found it now. This is, a, this is what I was, I'd been looking for. But um, I, I, that was such, such a strong experience. And I think it's a similar experience for many musicians, that, that discovery of music and the magic of it. But then to, to then start to see there was personal connections so I was a huge Led Zeppelin fan. That was my favourite band. But I did not know that John Bonham and Robert Plant were from virtually my town. I didn't know that. They were just a band. No one was going to tell me, oh, yeah, well, Robert Plant lives up the road. Mm. You know, so um, discovering all these links to my personal area, it was absolutely fascinating for me. So I think I became more interested than your average musician in the history because it seems sort of personal. Does, does that make sense? You know, and, uh, um, and, and my journey has been that, you know, I've worked with Robert Plant. You know, I ended up working with Robert Plant. I've ended up working with Bev Bevan from ELO. Um, I'm best friends with John Penny from Ned's Atomic Dustbin. I'm friends with Richard March from Populate itself. Um, either direct people I've come in contact with and of course, I'm fascinated by talking to them. And when you sit and talk to them, you find that they, they start to tell you things and you think, well, this isn't in the books. You know, um, it, it's like uh, there, there's a, a friend of mine called Kevin Gammond and he's an incredibly interesting musician. He's in his seventies now. He's one of my best friends and, and, and Kevin, when he was 16 years old, he's from my town. He saw an audition in Melody Maker and he, he ended up joining uh, the Jimmy Cliff Band at 16. So he was then down in London playing with the, the Stones and all this sort of stuff. And he, he sold his, one of his guitars to um, Keith Richards. And, you know, it's apparently the guitar that Keith Richards wrote Satisfaction on. And it's in the museum now. And so these people played a direct part. You know, Kev, Kev then went on to form, to cut a very long story short, he, he then on... He then went on to form Band of Joy with John Bonham and Robert Plant. And then from there, he, he, he um, toured with Jimmy Witherspoon. He played in Italy, Prague with Aphrodite's Child. And he ended up in a group called Ocatus. That was, is it Louis Anderson, the, the classical composer? It was his, so he ended up playing avant-garde music and it's such a career. So when I sit down with Kev, he can just continually tells you these stories about how you know, how the Led Zeppelin were formed or, you know, other encounters, you know, he, he, he used to tour with Hendrix. So we'd sit and jam with Hendrix. They'd literally sit backstage and just jam together. And, and so I, 
from Kev, I could say, well, what's he actually like? What would what would Jimmy be doing? He said, well, a lot of time he, he, he'd, he'd not be plugged in and he'd just sit down in front and you'd find some chords, just like jamming with anybody, you know, but then you got on stage and it was <laughs> something else, you know. So I, I've, I've always found this fascinating. I think because like, I, I feel like I've been able to glean a little bit of inside insights so I can add something to it as well from my own personal experience. Um, when I dis when I discovered the Mavish Nuxtra, to find out that John McGoughlin had spent like the whole of the 60s within that scene, right? And he never talks about it. He never mentions it. I find that fascinating. And my, and my, my wife's father was a singer in the 60s called Peter Wynn and he was signed up with um, Larry Parnes. So his backing band was Georgie Fane, um, Clem Cattini, or Brian Bennett from The Shadows, Licorice Locking from The Shadows, and Big Jim Sullivan on guitar. And of course, Big Jim Sullivan was best friends with John McGoughlin, um, and also signed up to Larry Parnes was Duffy Power. And Duffy Power was best friends with my mother-in-law, obviously they were married. So she was very friends, good friend with Duffy. And Duffy had a band that was Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce, and John McGoughlin, basically the Graham Bond band. Mm -hmm. And I find this fascinating. So, and I went out and checked out the music they made. And in 65, 64, 65, they're creating incredible, incredibly futuristic music. Sounds like rock music, sounds like prog. It's, it's a precursor to Cream, around about 65. Duffy's incredible vocals. And yet it's so hard to find much about this. I, I was watching your channel and uh, I uh, watched your Gary Husband interview and I thought Gary knows about this and I've had a mental note, you know, I would love to pick Gary's brain. But so, yeah, there's, there's personal connections. That's, that's what I grew up in was that, you know. Well, and it also enables one to speak to the, to the movers and shakers of, of that area. If you're able to get oral history that's not in press, uh, re press reviews or press interviews, uh, that's the real stuff. And I, you know, I obviously spend a lot of time trying to get to the bottom of things with the Yale Oral History Project and with my podcast. But it's true that you you hear things that you wouldn't expect when it's someone who knows who you are, you're speaking to a fellow musician, and the stories come out. Yeah. And yes, I've, I've always been fascinated with that idea of the British crossing from blues rock into avant jazz into jazz rock i mean it's a, it's an interesting transformation that takes place um yes mclaughlin is fully ensconced in that scene um but i know that he doesn't speak about it much gary husband will tell you he doesn't speak about yeah. it very much um but it is a time where i can sort of throw a hint as to what i think uh happens in terms of john at least not speaking about that is when he found out about my Mahavishnu project, he said, this is the beginning, your music you're playing is the beginning of my finding my own way in music. Now that's interesting because I think it kind of, by proxy says, I, that wasn't my way. <laughs> Up to Mahavishnu, I didn't know what mm -hmm. I wanted to do. Up to Mahavishnu, I didn't know what I was doing. But starting with Mahavishnu, I started to figure out what I wanted to do musically. That's mm -hmm. the best guess I have. 
Yeah, and I, and I think he classed a lot of what he was doing as session work as opposed to his creative work. The only, the, the only um, you know, problem with all this theory is in the middle of this is extrapolation. One of the greatest British jazz albums ever made, which he it is. Talk about extrapolation, yeah. I, I, I've said to British jazz fans, you know, where would you place extrapolation in, in you know, as, a, as an album? And many of them go, well, it's one of the greatest British jazz albums ever made. And it is, it is the summation of everything that's happened in London and it's it's and it's the beginning of all those rock rock influences coming in, um, but there's other things as well. That it's it's not like he was just playing for Burt Bacharach and doing session work. You know, there's there's some really incredible music. But I can understand where John McLaughlin's coming from. In the, he, he probably sees it as a big lead up, and then I suppose there's that going to America, playing in Mars, and then a spiritual awakening and all that type of stuff because his music does really change in 1971, his actual guitar playing changes. Uh, he, he, he's, he, before then, he seems to be a lot more, almost like Eric Dolphy influenced, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot more abstract and large intervallic jumps and a lot of free, free jazz in, influence there. Uh, and I wonder how difficult it was when he was pursuing that to actually get work, whether there was a frustration there, but, um, yeah, I, I'm interested in the history because I always, there's so many things that I find fascinating because I can't answer them. You know, I think that's what it is. Um, and and uh, it, uh, one of the things I've realised, this idea that there's rock music and then they mix rock with classical and got prog or they mix rock with jazz and got fusion, that is completely not the case. What you've got is is they're all coming out at the same time. The The, the, the production of rock produces fusion and prog all at the same time. It's all one big thing that's sort of emerging. So people start looking for, you know, who was the first fusion artist? Who was the first to have the idea? And it doesn't work like that because if you go back to the early rock albums, Brian Auger, um, Graham Bond, um, who else? Um, even Georgie Fame, you know, those sort of early bands in London and to some extent, Alex's Corner, Mm -hmm. The blues breakers—they're almost like early fusion bands as well. I would say. Yeah, and we, you know, we've uh, discussed on your program when I was uh, I was your guest the idea of everything being some form of fusion, because nothing exists in a vacuum and nothing is truly pure, because everyone is throwing in what they're interested in. And it's the music of their time and it's the music of their moment and they're responding to blues they're responding to the jazz that they grew up listening to and and you and i discussed that there were no rock drummers there were jazz drummers yeah. who were moving over to rock there were uh adjustments made in terms of how hard you would hit and how simply you would play or what you would do in terms of the drum kit, the drum sound. Um, that's, that's a very interesting discussion as well, because there is no pure jazz, pure classical, in my opinion. Uh, once you hit the 20th century, everybody's looking at how we bring things together. Now there's much more of a trend of keeping things pure, but you can't fight 
the uh, the crossbreeding. You can't fight it. It's just part of musical culture. It's part of world culture. Well, I'd hate to get so heavy early on in the discussion, but I'm sure this is going to be a heavy discussion. <laughs> I, I, my conclusion is that I've come to is th there's two very valuable things in all art. One is being popular. And, and, and often people don't want to discuss that, but everything that we discuss in some way is popular in some way. Even Cecil Taylor is, has been popular. And there's many artists that we don't know of because they weren't popular. So popularism is, a, is an important thing. And then innovation. And innovation is actually, it, it's, it's related to being popular. You innovate something and it becomes popular. So for example, Cecil Taylor is, may not have had a number one hit, but in terms of what he innovated, those ideas became popular. They, they, they moved into course. Those, those two things balancing each other, and sometimes they're talked in opposition. But I think it's, it's very important that arts do that, that, that they at once innovate and that, they're, and that they're popular because it means that the art can change. And I believe that art is integral to human existence, that without it, we, we would completely fail as a species. I think um, that there's a, um, a problem with human beings and it's the balance between that Apollo and Dionysian elements, you know, that you've got sort of rationalism and intellect and then you've got hedonism and emotionalism and, and, and uh, the way we've evolved as a species, those two things are in, you know, they're, they're, they're not joined together. And so human beings have invented a sort of, you know, an upgrade, you know, and uh, one of those upgrades is is art, and I think that's what art does. It, it continually balances those things, and musicians are trying always to try and get the balance right, based upon the cultural epoch they're in. They're trying to balance emotionalism and and uh, perfectionism. That's what they're trying to do, and and then that re relates to innovation and popularism, and your yeah, but it's really just trying to create a balance. Um, and, and that's why in a certain era, the guitarist is Hendrix, it has to be Hendrix. But and in another era, it's Charlie Christian. And then at another point, it's Tom Morello. You know, they're, they're, they're all doing the same thing. You know, I think as Wayne Shorter said, they're all scrambling the eggs, but they're all scrambling it in their, their own way, you know. And I think that's what drives me to, to study the history of it, because I'm just really interested in why why that's happening at a certain time and why it's that musician and you know that's uh, that's something that's fascinated me because i think i re i really don't like the idea that art is just that beauty's in the eye of the beholder and it's all subjective you know i i studied fine art at college i was originally a painter and that really was the sort of philosophical approach that you know the viewer or listener brings themselves to it and they do to a to a certain extent but I, but I feel because we're human beings, we're joined together as well. And I think it's very important that when you make music, you, you feel that what you're doing is communicating. If you're feeling something when the, you're making the music, you hope it would be horrible to go, well, yeah, but that's just random. You know, you, you may feel all this emotion as you're playing, but they don't feel that. They feel something entirely different. You know, I, I think that, that artists rely on the fact that, um, they're communicating something. That was a long, that was a long answer, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's really what drives me in all my interests is that.
I, I think you're on the case there. Uh, it certainly is. Well, I always say art exists outside of time. So it's of its time. But then ultimately, you know, we're not in the 60s anymore. And we're still grappling with the, some of the concepts that were yeah. at play in the 60s. Uh, and they even inform the choices that we make right now. So, you know, again, the vacuum's gone and everything is sort of on the table. But you make a good point that the way we respond to to our cultures, whether it be food or or dance or architecture or music, uh, any of those things is a form of communication. So you do have people communicating. Well, I like things to be a little bit looser here. I like things to be very controlled. I have. I want every note written and in its place. And you have all of those sort of subcultures of how we deal with the Dionysian uh, conflict of order and chaos. Mm. And so I think th that very early on, I was interested in, in that f part of, um, of certainly free jazz, because it wasn't all free. You know, what was Cecil writing down? What was repeatable in Ornette's music? What was repeatable in Derek Bailey's music, in that case, nothing. So, you know, there's there there are all these uh, different levels of control. But and even with Derek Bailey, Bailey, you could repeat process, couldn't you? Yes. Derek Bailey's approaching it with this process, and I can see what he's doing there. And sometimes it will be the the choosing not to do something, um, which is all. This is what I always say with free jazz. This is the virtuosity of it. Is that um, just just trying to play random notes is is hard you know the 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 serialists had to come with the 12 tone idea to try and to play random notes um if you're improvising and you've played tonal music for most of your time you'll find that every single thing that you play that you try to be random will be rooted in some sort of sort of tonality in the same way as a as a, a drummer um, it's very difficult not to play in time, isn't it? Um, you're going to have to, to not play in time, you're going to have to really concentrate. And, and so I think that, I, I really think process is the beginning of creativity. And when you listen to free jazz, it's often pure process that you are um, exploring. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's probably, you know, what, how, what would happen if we did this? Mm. And where, where does it lead you you know what what happens it, it, it's 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 nuclear reactor music isn't it it's uh you know it's like colliding subatomic particles it's that type of process you're 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 trying to innovate because i think i think i really value innovation as uh i think i know i've my personality is that when i judge an artist more than say their virtuosity or their skill level it's their innovation that I value the highest. I think innovation is very important. Mm. But very recently, I've been realizing this link to popularism. You know, I think it's doing my channel, uh, doing my channel and talking about fusion. I suddenly start to realize, oh my God, we talk about this stuff because they actually sold records. That's the fascinating bit of what they, you know, why did the Mavish Noxious sell records? Why did Weather Report sell records? You know, this is the, that's the that's the X factor is why we're talking about them. If they hadn't, mm. you know, um, and so, somebody once asked me to do a thing about British jazz, 
and I know knew that they wanted me to talk about isotope, you know, and all these these, and I thought, yeah, but what do I what do I do about Jamaraquai and level forty two? Are those is that British jazz? You know, I I think level forty two are dripping with jazz and fusion, you know, but they were popular as well, so. I'm, I'm very interested in popularism at the moment. <laughs> That's one of my, uh, one of the things I'm uh, thinking about quite a bit. I think it really relates to today's music climate. I think where there's just too much, it's just trying to push the button of popularism now is, is the problem with this era. Yeah, and certainly the bands that are innovating that are out there have their audience. And, and it's usually a younger audience because that's the music that is being innovated as we speak. Uh, uh, some of us like to look back. Some of us have contact with young people through university. And, and of mm. course, that keeps us pretty fresh. But let's talk a little bit about your personal history with music and drumming. When did you start hitting things? Um, when I was 12 years old. So um, my dad had been an amateur jazz drummer in the 50s. He'd had an interest in trad jazz. Here in the UK, there was a big interest in trad jazz you know uh, in the 50s there was also an interest in modern jazz as they called it which here in the uk would have been ronnie scott's tubby hayes and also joe harriet which never gets who never gets discussed who was there before there before ornettes you know um uh, and um so my dad was at an age where he wasn't a rock and roller he was a jazz guy so when i grew up from the year dot listening to modern jazz quartet brubeck Chico Hamilton, my dad really liked. He liked um, Stan Kenton. He liked um, Jerry Mulligan, you know. Uh, and then he had a ton of albums, Duke, um, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, all those, that sort of thing. So I'd had that from, the, from a, a young age and been fascinated by it. And had my dad explaining jazz to me when I was like four or five, you know, he would sit and I'd go, what's this about? And he'd say, well, they're, they're making this up. This is how they're making this up. So that was a he was brilliant. He was an amateur jazz, amateur drummer. So he had some sticks in the house. So I picked up the sticks and started hitting things, you know, coinciding with my interest in the new wave of British heavy metal. I think it was Motorhead that did it. When I first heard Motorhead, that was just like, whoa, you know, Ace of Spades came out. And I thought, well, I've got to hit something. So I went and got my dad's sticks and I started hitting stuff. And after two years of hitting everything in the house, my dad bought me a drum kit um, and because I'd, I'd pretty much worked out how to drum. So this was a big shock because they bought me this kit and, the, and I set it up and then started soloing on it straight away. So it seemed like I was a bit of a prodigy because I could just play them straight away. But I'd been working it out for two years, you see. Um, and I started playing. I had no contact with other musicians. I didn't play in any bands. I, I bought my records and I played. Um, I, up until about the age of 16, 17, I probably had three jams with other musicians. And that was it, just three individual jams. And one day I was playing the drums and somebody was older than me had been to my school. He was, he was a professional musician. He had a, like a covers band and he was walking past the house, heard me drumming. And uh, he went, oh, there's a drummer there. He, and, he went back the next day and knocked and my mom said yes my son plays drums and I turned out I knew him from school so at my first gig and the first band I ever played in was a pro band earning money and it was good money 
you know, doing like working men's clubs and doing cover versions, you know, Whitney Houston songs. And I did that for a while up to me going to college and it made me some money, but I didn't like it. I hated it. And so I jumped out of that and then I ended up joining a sort of communist big band totally the other end and i've got i got to play some really weird jazz in that and there was like tracks in 17 and, and i could do all that stuff and that was really great and in, in that band there was some really fantastic players and that took me down a certain route and my first sort of profile gig was it was with a bangra band in the uk we have bangra bands and there it's like a mixture of mixture of pop and rock with sort of quali indian quali and they're really this was a really big band it was on the tv and stuff so i i suddenly had a taste of doing like thousand seater gigs and having a deal all on the Bangra scene and that took me to a certain thing um I all all the time this was going on I had a lot of virtuosity I'm completely self-taught but um um and I think to my dad's jazz record collection and then discovering Billy Cobham early on and and assuming that's how you played the drums which is so I you know, I, I had to work it all out myself. You know, I had to work out what time signatures were. Mm. Uh, reading the backs of Dave Brubeck albums. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is in nine eight. It's, it's you know, it's counted like this. And then, then I would work it out. So I, I had a lot of uh, I had a lot of chops. So at the same time, I then got, got calls to teach, and that was very strange to start off with. People ring me up and said, "Can you show me stuff?" And I they would come around the house. So I, I started teaching early on as well. And both of those things just emerged, you know, it was, I never planned to do it. So I, I, I went to college, did art and thought I was going to be a graphic designer, but I ended up teaching music and playing in bands. Uh, and, and, and through the teaching, I came in contact with my friend, Kevin Gammon, who I mentioned earlier, who was best friends with Robert Plant. And in um, 1997, Robert was doing the page and plant thing. And, uh, you know, Robert has a, has a certain relationship with, with Led Zeppelin, which I, I think I'm at liberty to describe here, because I think it's quite obvious that, you know, Robert's a very forward thinking musician. I actually think if you go back to his, if you go to his recent albums, he's one of the most forward thinking musicians of that age, you know, of that age group. He's not doing a Rod Stewart, he's exploring samples and African music and all this type of stuff. And I, and I, I think, when he was doing page and plant he, he was just getting tired of that and he was he wanted to try and do something else which meant closing down and um and having a rethink and he approached his, his friend kevin gammon and kev you know said can you get a band together of just local guys so we can experiment and he said yes yeah. so kev pulled me in so i i, I suddenly got involved in this this little project with Robert Plant, when he was coming in and saying, let's do some country tunes. Mm. Let's do, you know, why don't we do these early, you know, US garage tracks and, and, and why and you bring in a Dionne Warwick track and we do that. It was a very strange band and, and Robert absolutely loved it. And the next thing was, well, let's, let's do some gigs. And um, because Robert, I mean, you're really dealing with one of the biggest artists in history and he wanted to play 200 seaters. So, we we had to do the opposite of every other band and keep it absolutely secret so there was this idea of creating like a secret band and we came up with this idea of priory of brian which was based upon the priory of zion which is this secret organization which sort of looks after the you know uh, the holy grail type of thing and, and a mixture of life of brian which i think robert probably saw 
you know, a, a comic comparison to somebody that everyone thinks is the Messiah. And they're not, they're not the Messiah, they're just a naughty boy. I, I found that very interesting. So we record the Priory of Brian and the first gigs were very, very small. You know, we, I think the first gig was about 80 people in a pub and it was all kept secret, but even with it being kept secret, it would, it would just leak out. So you'd, you'd get these hundreds of people arriving and that could be quite comic. There, there was once, we once played a festival where um, they'd set this big tent up that would house about 200 people. We sound checked, went to get something to eat. The audience walked in and completely filled the tent. So there was no way of getting in. We just could not get in without asking everybody to come back out. So in the end, we had to go to the other end of the tent and we cut a hole. I can remember cutting a hole in this tent, this ram full of people. We cut a hole and Robert basically stuck his head through like that, <laughs> looked around and then opened it up. And we all crawled basically through this hole onto stage. And the, the audience would go, what is this? It's like this, this tent is internally giving birth to Robert Plant. It was just the most bizarre. So yeah, and that, that band grew when Robert, you know, we did, we did that for two years. I did over a hundred gigs with him. Um, and by the end of it, we had full management. We were doing all proper shows. I was doing 60,000 seaters, you know, uh, you know, headlining festivals. It was an incredible two years of my life. And it was, it was, it, 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 it was an incredible experience. Um, and then after that, I, I came out of that band in a different position. I now was endorsed. I was doing clinics, you know, cause they found out I could play and teach. So I was doing drum clinics. So I was, doing clinics with like Billy Cobham and Simon Phillips and Terry Bozio and going around doing that. Um, I was playing with a blues artist called Ian Parker tour in Europe doing that. So everything went up a gear after that. Um, and I eventually sat down and thought, what do I really want to do? And I love fusion and I love prog. So I ended up auditioning for IQ, the British neo prog band. And I joined IQ. Then from that, I formed Frost, uh, and we did an album called um, Million Town, which has been is is a has a cult following, but had quite an influence on prog rock. And that sort of as as then I have settled as being known as a progressive rock musician. And I've played with well the guys from Palace, and I've played with the guys from Pendragon, and and I've um, played with Magenta, and done various prog projects since then. And I currently have a band called Rain which uh, um, is signed to GP Records. We have an album out called Singularity, working on a second album, uh, which is me, John Jowett, who was also in IQ and Frost and was also with Arena, and Uriah Heap and a whole bunch of prog bands. Um, and then my friend Rob Grocutt, who is the son of Kelly Grocutt from ELO. And there's one of those connections that we can talk about. And a, a young guitarist, like, who's like a prodigy, you know, young guitarist singer called Miron, Miron Webb. So that's my career. So <laughs> when we say, if you're saying uh, Rain is is a progressive band, what what are the areas of interest that you're exploring with the group? Like? Well, this is a really this is this is the awful topic, isn't it, that comes up when you start to talk about prog versus progressive. Um, so um, when I played with Robert, that never stuck. I, I never became known as Robert Plant's drummer. You know, I, I came out of that band and then I did other things. Once I did IQ and Frost, I, I had a little bit of purchase on, on the progressive rock scene. You know, the scene that you have just been sat in on 
Cruise to the Edge, you know, that scene, which seems to cover all those artists and yet doesn't cover these artists. And um, I was frustrated by the lack of progressive tendencies in prog. When I was doing it, I found it frustrating. So I actually got out of prog because of that. And I did other projects and I could never get these pro projects off the ground. I think it would have been better if I hadn't have done prog because the fan base that was there were very kind, trying their hardest to get into my stuff, which uh, my own stuff back then sounded very much like Noah, Louis Cole. Yeah. Very neo-soul-y, very uh, electronic-y, avant-garde free parts to it in terms of the soloing. Uh, which I felt was true progressive music. Um, and I, I, I had to grapple with this. And it's very interesting that the, the, the band that inspired me to do Rain, because Rain was my project, I put it together, um, is a band that you were with at the weekend, Moon Safari. When I heard Moon Safari, I was like, I love this band. It's, it's got... It's got all the elements that make it prog, but it's exciting to me. And what I felt was exciting to me was the pop, the, the vocal harmonies and the hooks and the pop elements. And I, and I thought, if I ever do a prog band, mm. I will be able to stomach it if I can have those vocal elements in and we can do all that. And Moon Safari was why I formed Rain. And, wow. uh, and that idea, and, I, and I'd go to Rob, my friend Rob Groker was my best friend whose dad was in, in ELO, he has inherited his dad's ability to do vocal harmonies because contrary to popular belief, um, you know, ELO was a band, you know, and Jeff Lynne did play a big part in it, but so did the other members. And this is a very contentious subject that I was straight into. But um, Kelly Grocut, you know, Rob's dad, was an incredible singer that could mimic di different singers. He could sing like opera, he could sing like, you know, Nancy Sinatra, and he would do a lot of the vocal arrangements. And, and the ELO sound is really that vocal sound. And I went to Rob and said, I want to do a prog band, but I want to bring you in from this sort of almost Beatles ELO thing and have that, that sound within it. And I think if I have that sound partnered with my slight King Crimson Mavish New Zappa tendencies over here, I think we can actually do something that the audience would consider prog. And, uh, and then I can get a deal with it. And you know, and I've recorded the album, then we went into COVID. So we ended up recording the album, which helped because we were stuck. And yeah, we send it to labels and they liked it. Um, and, and even with all that, even with, I suppose me trying to write what I would, you know, to, to make a prog album, but without it sounding like a Genesis album or a Yes album. That's the, that's the constraint I don't like. I, I've got no problem with the cliches. Like I've got no problem with doing them, but you want the overall sound to sound different. So you sound like your own band. And I, and I found that um, so often the prog audience now, it's almost like tribute bands and they want a band to sound exactly like the band they like, you know? It's, um... It's disconcerting at times how conventional so-called progressive audiences can be and how tied to past 
concepts of what progressivism is. It can be very disappointing, can be very frustrating. And certainly all the different kinds of projects I've tried to do have run up against that wall. Uh, people who know me from the musical box don't give a shit about the Mahavishnu project. You know, in fact, people who are into the musical box and Genesis music in general don't have very wide and varied tastes, typically. I've, obviously, there are exceptions, and I've enjoyed meeting those people. But it is interesting how people become quite insular in what they regard as uh, as the real stuff. And since you know, you know, you and I have agreed that uh, you know it is all on the table, and everyone should choose what it is they they feel makes their music a picture of their brain which is, I think, ultimately what we're trying to do is, is uh, show people, externalize what, what it is we yeah, no, uh, enjoy, brilliant, right? Brilliant statement, that is, yeah. Yeah, like to, to uh, communicate, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I can see the position there uh, that anyone is in right now making sort of forward-leaning music, and we're all up against it. But we do it because we love it. I mean, you're not going to change it to make it more popular and, and as you say, hit the populism button repeatedly. No. But the elements that you're drawing together, I mean, Moon Safari was extraordinary live. Uh, that was to be able to speak with them, but then also to be able to just listen to them play their shows where everyone on stage is singing and, uh, you know, nothing is ever out of tune. Uh, all the hooks are there, but then they'll go into an instrumental and then they'll come back and people were calling them the Beach Boys of, of progressive music. That's fine. I mean, there's even three brothers in the band, for fuck's sake. So uh, it's it's an interesting thing because early vocal arranging is what influences bands like that. So you have, you know, the four freshmen and, and the groups that, that Brian Wilson was listening to uh, that influenced rock music and even groups like Simon and Garfunkel and uh, mm. the Swingle Singers and, and all these bands that were doing large-scale harmony trips. Um, and having that work into bands like Yes and, and Genesis and groups that were going to do a lot of harmoni harmonizing and vocal, uh, that was something that I think kind of got lost along the way and and in favor of instrumentalism that that was the that was one of the many ideas in rain rain i really conceptualized because i was i felt i was banging my head on i know i i knew i needed to do a band that the prog fans could accept but i wanted to mess with it you see and i'm a zappa fan so i'm, I'm totally happy to do that talking about moon safari it was really bizarre that uh, once the rain album came out the lead singer of, of moon safari contacted me is it peter um uh, Simon, Peter, yeah. Yeah, we one of the, and, uh, and he contacted me and, and it turned out he'd heard me on Frequency and on Frequency there's a track at the end of the album called Closer, right? And when we were recording it, I was so into it that when the track finished it, I just carried on drumming for about four minutes and the studio, I was just going for it and I was, and I just went in, because I thought, well, they'll just fade this out. I just did my thing that I've always done. And uh, the band loved it. So they built a, a, an extra section over my drumming and 
and and, and the guys from Mimic Safari would say, we, we heard you do this, and this was so unlike what a prog drummer would normally do. That and we loved it, and he said, I've been following you ever since. And, and I found this over and over again that it's like little Morse code, you do something, it sends messages out. And I went, This is bizarre. I said, Because the whole reason I'm here doing this now is because of hearing Moon Safari, you know, 12 years ago. And 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 that these ideas are there. This is the this is the big um thing about prog. It is in it's in there, it's all the prog musicians know it, you know, they all if you sit down with any prog musician, they want to push the envelope and do that progressive thing, which is very hard to quantify what it is. Um, uh, and then there's this prog thing, which is the genre, you know, which is why you're in seven and you've got triads moving like this and you've got a riff, you know, and it, it's, you could sort of, it's prog by numbers, you know. Um, it's, so my idea with Rain uh, was to was to play with this. So the album starts off, on, it's very harmonized, very catchy. It's almost like pop music. And then as the album comes on, the progressive tenses go, it goes to a range of what like, he is sort of classic prog. Sec, the mm. second track or third track is by that time, he'd got a 10 minute track, which is classic prog. And then it goes into a track called The Magician. And The Magician is this idea, it's a, it's a bit like a sort of, cosmic debris ideas like a magician you met this magician and he gives you a potion and it's hallucinogenic and and then the album starts to go weirder and because i felt that they're in modern prog there's a line and when we're moving up to this line and they could take it they could take it oh they passed the line now oh this is getting a bit weird it was like genesis oh now it's like king crimson well now it's like gentle giants and this this is the idea of the the album and at, at one point it then the album collapses and you hear all the other tracks spinning and it comes into this piece, which is proper modern electronica with fan noises and there's stuff like that. And, it, and it, the whole album ends with just a recording of my garden and my wife calling the cat in right at the end of the album. So the whole album is conceptualized and the beginnings, the end and stuff like this. And I felt that's prog is the whole album there. You have that and it takes you to this point. There's your prog. And so many people went, Oh, I love the album. But towards the end, it got a bit weird, and I didn't like the last track. <laughs> and so we, you know, we we made a mistake. Somehow we'd made a mistake because we'd done all these great prog tracks, and then it went a bit weird. And then this last track, which is just this strange electronic ambient noise thing, you know, that was that was they didn't like that, you know. And so we then redid that track with all the prog cliches so that so we have a version of that track as well so they can they can hear that's the title track singularity they can hear that with all the full prog bells and whistles i i, I i'm not a purist i'm quite happy to mess around with this stuff it is just frustrating with prog you know that you are sometimes having to spoon feed that audience which is i'm sure is the same in every genre but i think us prog musicians who grew up with prog we were always, always expecting it to be proper prog. <laughs> well, I, honestly, for me, since I take so much from from the jazz avant-garde and and from from contemporary classical, I think the term that I go to time and time again is subvert subvert expectation, and mm -hmm. and be able to to surprise. You know, when I interviewed Jack DeJanet for Yale Oral History, I asked him, "What is jazz?" 
And he thought for a fraction of a second, and his answer was surprise. Now, if, if we look at those kinds of attitudes towards music making, I don't want to be bored. I don't want to be bored as a listener. I don't want to be bored as a, as a creator. Um, and that means there's going to be surprise. There's going to be some unexpected twists and turns. Uh, we're going to keep you on, you know, on the, on your toes, on your uh, toes of your ears, listening and, and sort of thinking, what's going to happen now? Why is this happening? How is this connected? And we're making these sort of, uh, maybe obtuse, but, but certainly uh, abstract connections between musical worlds. That to me is a very heavy progressive concept. So I'm with you 100% down the road, if you're going to start that album the way you do and progress all the way up to electronica. Clearly, uh, that's a big part of progressive music right now, because you have bands like Code Orange, that are bringing glitching and 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 uh, and electronica sounds into metal, so uh, you know I don't see any downside to it. In fact, um, you know, screw the people that that couldn't deal with rain going in that direction because really that's what rain is supposed to do. Rain is supposed to subvert your expectations about what it is. If it is truly progressive, it will do that. And all think about all the best things that we grew up listening to that messed with our minds. Zappa is always a great example. You know, we're going from some sort of abstract rhythmic outing into a song about uh, an incident that happened on tour, you know, back to something completely abstract. And uh, I always say Zappa warped my mind. Sorry about these. I've got my phone on. So Zappa was really a big part of, of just opening us up to... Well, it's all possible. And if you can find the right people to do that, it will come across as seamless. It will come across as just part of the whole panorama of what is your music, but also what is music in general. I think progressive music does embrace a larger number of genres than any other form of music. So, yeah, I, I, the thing with prog, prog is, progressive music is... For me personally, I was listening to a lot of rock music and one day I was at school and this kid came up to me and he said, I've heard you're into weird music. By that he meant I was listening to Led Zeppelin, or, you know, or Pink Floyd, that's what he meant. I don't even think I was listening to Pink Floyd at that point, it was just full on rock. And he said, I've got this album and he said, it's unlistenable. He says, you can have it, do you want to do a swap? And I went, yeah. I, and he goes, what you got? And I said, I've got Silver Machine picture disc. And he was like, oh, I'll have that. I want that. So because it was a picture disc. So I brought in my Silver Machine picture disc and I swapped it. And it was the Yes album. <laughs> right. And, I, and that's it. That's, that's, so this was a challenge for me. So I took this album home and I put it on and it absolutely blew me away. And, and what he found unpalatable was what I loved. And what it was is that it was the unexpected, like you said. It's, and it wasn't about a cliche like this is how you sound heavy metal. This is how you sound funk. It starts off and it's it's like an acoustic track, you know, sounds like Simon and Garfunkel. Then suddenly it's a boogie blues, and then the next thing it's it, you've got the you've got clap by Steve Howe and it's Chet Atkins finger picking, and then suddenly it's it's and and I I was just taken on a journey and I was so impressed by that album, I can remember taking it to bed and and memorizing everything on the back cover, memorizing it and go right, I need to know what that is, 
and that that yes is one of those bands you know there was a number of bands for me there's like there was like rock music and then there was zeppelin and then i went through all that and then there was yes and then i started oh that's a bit lp and genesis and i loved all that stuff and then there was another sort of progressive rock band which was the mavishn orchestra and when i got that so that that was the gateways the, that very thing you're describing is the thing i love and i think in the terms of the history of of, of rock music or what you want to call it that's what the musicians are doing aren't they they're not trying to invent prog what suddenly happened is musicians were allowed to explore whatever they wanted yeah and when you read the stories of yes making those albums they were so lucky to have a you know atlantic records behind them with a ton of money and then be able to just basically make it up which is what they were doing that's what you hear is the joy of somebody going what happens when you do this can you know and they're pushing this thing called and I, and I really think this comes from the beatles i think the beatles are so important you know and there's arguments i've had online but again it's it's because the beatles were so popular it enabled everybody then to do all this stuff you know right because you have an album that that goes from a string quartet a string octet with with choir to an indian piece yeah Pabla. And yeah. once that happens, it's it's game over. You know, exactly. it, everyone's invited to the party, and yes, you can you can do all of those things and still call it pop music or still call it rock music. Yeah, yeah. and this is the, this is the, this is the, this is this concept I'm coming back to over and over again. Is the reason why yes is important is because they were popular. That's the magical thing is that that was a magical time that close to the edge would be at the top of the charts and that they would be able to do these big tours off that album. That's incredible. It's that's the thing that makes it incredible because that's a hell of an album. It's a hell of an album. And I could, I could put Andrew and I on right now and go, well, this is just sublime. I, I, I would have me in tears. It's just incredible, incredible music. And I, and I think as the seventies progressed, that tendency for exploration, it, it overran itself. I think by the mid seventies, it had overrun itself. And I've always argued that punk was the next stage of prog. It, it wasn't the antithesis. It was actually the next stage. It, it, the thing that the thing that kept prog grounded was that sort of do it yourself attitude. It was mm -hmm. this idea of let's just experiment. Uh, uh, really underpinned by an English aesthetic, which is the same aesthetic that crops up with Monty Python. Same, you know, the, the same aesthetic that you'd get if you listen to the Laughing Policeman. There's a certain English aesthetic that the Be Beatles took. They took like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, but they applied this English aesthetic to the music. And and I felt progressive rock was that. That's what it was. And that's what kept it grounded. Once they became too sophisticated, it it was it, it did go up its own arse in effect and punk is basically those tendencies pulled back but you still have that english aesthetic you still have the idea of trying to make rock music without a blues influence which i think was very important to all the prog bands um you still have that homemade idea you know the english aesthetic all, all those things are retained but a lot of the stuff is 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 pulled out and what that that what i made that that happened next was once punk had happened, which is a very short period of time, and, and bands like The Stranglers and Susie and the Banshees, and to some extent The Clash, 
and even Sex Pistols, I can hear progressive, especially with the Stranglers, they almost, well, they, they are a prog band, aren't they? So I really feel that it's the next stage. They're the next prog bands. And, and, and when you pull in those tendencies, you then have the pop of the 80s, which mm. is the police or Peter Gabriel, Kate Bush, or, or, or the, all, the, all the prog bands like Genesis, and yes, it did successfully plug in, pull in, but also bands like Visage and, you know, Human League. XTC definitely would be a, a very good contender for this. And I think that, that the, the pop music, the British pop music of the early 80s was some of the best pop music ever. And I, so I, when I listen to a band like Boy George Culture Club, I feel that that's an extension of the prog project. And this is why it's so difficult to make prog now, because actually you can then trace that through to all the modern styles. Now there's been a denial of this in sort of, in sort of music criticism. Prog, prog was a dead end and it stopped and then punk came in and made it all better. And it's not the case. There's, and I think it's the same argument for fusion. Fusion ends up being sort of American pop music. If, if you listen to Thriller, off the wall and thriller is is the summation of 70s fusion in a way <laughs> you know i mean it's half the musicians that made it are on it and you can hear that you can hear that there you know through stevie wonder you know earth wind and fire to that sort of stuff you know with quincy jones at the helm and that, I, I i think if these genres would be more this is the big problem as someone inside the progressive rock world if the genres could be more open to going, well, you know that that's prog. Kendrick Lamar to Pimp a Butterfly is a full-on prog album. There's nothing that the album doesn't do that isn't prog. Everything about it's prog. But if you went to a prog fan and said, have you got the new prog album to Pimp a Butterfly? <laughs> they go, what? And, it, and it's a shame that the prog world can't go, this is our lineage. These, this is our lineage here. Because, like you say, it's a tendency. And when I when I heard Kendrick Lamar was doing that, and I saw, I thought, yeah, he's gone prog now. He's gone prog. Anyone can go prog. <laughs> well, I've I've had the you know the great gift of uh, a son who grew up listening to all the crazy stuff I threw at him, but then when the music of his time happened into his life as a teenager, and that being hip hop and and rap music he started turning me on to what he called progressive hip hop or prog hop. Um, he has other terms for it as well, but you do begin to see that hip hop had people who were into weirdness and people like Kendrick Lamar and uh, uh, bands like Hiatus Coyote that were influenced by fusion, yeah. jazz rock and progressive music in general, you know, they're listening to everything, Kate Bush. And then they say, well, why can't we bring that into this okay. form of, you know, for lack of a better term, urban music and realize that it's still the same attitude. We can go for, for weird, odd. I mean, Kendrick Lamar has odd meters in his, in his music. So and not, just odd, not just odd meters, but meters that took me by surprise, new ways of, of where, where his rap virtuosity, he's been able to push that. And I'm hearing stuff and going, I don't really know what's going on here. I, I, this is a new, new on meters, you know, where the, the you know, and 
I, I find it all really fascinating. It, and I think the failure of, of, of the prog world to go, look how proud we are of Kendrick Lamar, because that has come from our, you know, all the all this music here has come from our, our source, but they want to deny those bands. And I found that all the way through so many different styles of music and, and meeting musicians. So, so take early 80s pop music, if my thesis is right, and I know it is, if you sit and talk to those guys, if you go and talk to the guys in Eurasia, or you talk to the guys in Human League, or you talk to the guys in um, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, many of those guys did not grow up listening to punk because they were almost formed, that was only been a few years before, they'd grown up listening to Genesis. You know, it, 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 it's directly out of that, even, John Lydon was listening to Van de Graaff Generator, but he was also far more, which nobody mentions, is Captain Beefheart. I, I had Troutmass Replica on yesterday, and I thought, doesn't sound like the Sex Pistols, like, my God, it sounds like Public Image Limited. And then Bill Laswell gets hold of it, and they do one of the great progressive rock band albums of the 80s, which is Album by P Pill, with Ginger Baker, Tony Williams, Steve Vai. That, that album's a prog album by by John Lydon, because these these things, it's a tendency. It's a tendency. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing a, a masterclass tomorrow with Bev Bevard and, and, and Bev's, you know, ELO is a prog band and he's, there's, there's a tendency in, in there in ELO. They're not a prog band like Genesis or Gentle Giant, but there's, there's a progressive tendency. But one of my students is now the drummer of The Stranglers and he's coming as well. So we're going to have a big chat and I, I, the Stranglers are a prog band, you know. Um, they, they, I, I, I can see when a band's not a prog band and when they are a prog band, you know. I could, I could sort of, there's a tendencies in there that you can go, if, if somebody's doing something this band conceptually, right, if there's an English aesthetic in there, a, a sense of do it yourself, a sense of, of, of moving between genre, of extending the arrangements, of, of not utilizing blues forms, but trying to make rock rock music without that. I mean, that's one of the big gifts of, of prog is, is, is rock and roll that is not rooted in the blues. You know, the Sex Pistols, are a, a, they're a rock band, a great rock band, but they're different to rock bands before because the blues has been sucked out of it. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that's, a, that's a, if you're English, that's a very, understandable thing because as much as I love Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant singing about levies is a bit incongruous because it, he's not, that's not his culture. That's if you're British, you know, as we go back to this idea that rock music comes from, um, in some, to a large extent from this country that I'm in, how do you deal with the fact that you you haven't grown up in that American culture, you know, that you love so much? Uh, and I think that was apparent. I think King Crimson was, was a band that really went, how do we make rock music without, you know, referencing that directly because we are not that. So I think that's a very important thing. And if you see that as one of the gifts of progressive music, you then start to see that in so many bands and so many pop, the British pop bands that have been huge have that, element in them where they, they, they're, there's a, an Englishness in there. You know, that, that's a very specific thing. And, and for some reason, 
that's tr transmitted worldwide. And I, I, that's something I don't understand. Well, once the internet happened, uh, certainly people were going to hear more diverse music than they were able to just from local radio. Um, and yeah, you talk about bands like Gentle Giant, who were both musically and lyrically trying to get away from the blues. Baby, baby, I want you to come yeah. back. You know, what are we going to sing about? Well, how about British mythology? And, the, you know, the, the concept of uh, giants roaming the the English countryside and uh, different types of creatures, or even at the, go into psychology with pieces like knots and and mm -hmm. Lang and and be interested in in other concepts, because yeah, blues and rock was so much based out of bad relationship songs and, uh, and yeah yeah songs, you know it's it's like if you take rock and roll and you take out that the American influence and you replace it with the british influence you get prog but you also get chas and dave do you know chas and dave yeah yeah well chas and dave that's another take on it that's mm. another take and um it's interesting with chas and dave because those guys were, were on that session for labby sifri and it's the chas and dave guys that came up with the riff that was then sampled for slim shady by eminem and that circle of, the, of those guys taking Jerry Lewis and then taking an English spin on it and then teaming up with an English, basically soul singer, Labby Stiffery, and making a track. And then it being sampled by Eminem. And there's a, this is a really, it's not discussed at all. Is it, I call it the English aesthetic. You know, popular music's an American form, you know, blues and jazz, that's an American form. Your country invented it. That's what it is. It's, that's where it comes from. You mix that with the English aesthetic, and that's where the magic is. You know, that's that's the Beatles, that's the Stones, it's the Jam, it's the Police, it's um, well any band you want to mention. And so you go, yeah, but you know, there are bands like Metallica. That's a huge, that's a huge rock band. You go, yeah, but you know, Lars Ulrich was sleeping three miles up the road on the floor of Brian Tatler's house in the early eighties. You know, Brian Tatler's a friend of mine, he's a guitarist with Diamond Head. And he wasn't American anyway. And he came to England. This is, this, and it, so it crops up over and over again, this idea of the English aesthetic um, and how that, that operates within, within Americana and American, you know, music forms. And, and like you said, I think, yeah, the, the American bands were listening to British bands and the British bands were listening to American bands. And that, that was, that relationship hasn't been discussed, you know. Uh, all the guys I know, um, like Robert and, and Bev, that those first tour to the States in the late 60s, you know, Robert would tell me of sort of then hooking up with Janis Joplin and then him sort of, you know, Janis sort of showing him around and all this type of stuff and yeah. him finally being with with that culture that he sort of worships. That, that's, it's a symbiosis, but it's, yeah, I. I find this absolutely fascinating. I, I, I think there's something I don't quite understand and I'm always trying to get my head, head around what it is. I had a very unique experience, thanks to Todd Rundgren, where when he was playing in Ringo Starr's all-star band, I had the chance to meet Ringo and Ringo started up a conversation with me, which really took me by surprise, which was, he said to me, in fact, we were only interested in American bands. And I said, 
well, we were only interested in British bands. And he said, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we were only interested in American drum sets, like you had to have Ludwig drums. And so there was this kind of cross purposes or, or, or cross uh, intent that we always wanted the thing that you, you couldn't have, where you know you wanted to be American if you were British and you wanted to be British if you were American. And we were besotted with, with uh, Python. And even uh, later on, you mentioned uh, Lemmy and Motorhead. The first time we heard Motorhead was on The Young Ones. When they sh when Motorhead shows up in their in the young one's living room, yeah, and uh, and and so there's that was the kind of another British invasion for us was new wave and punk coming over yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I see this is all much much more closer linked, you know, than um than people realize that the, the I, I I I think part of my breeds for doing my YouTube is that I think the the music critic view of music history that I grew up that was in the sort of rock encyclopedias didn't add up with what I was listening to. So, the, and the big tell, tell that for me was the fact that these incredible prog bands and fusion bands were, were, were terrible in their eyes. And I was going, what? What weather report? Three stars? What? Frank Zappa? You know, and, and I thought they, they don't understand. They don't understand. So, um, I think the the way that history works is a lot different than people think. So if you take Ringo Starr, for example, growing up in Liverpool, he lives, that's a port town facing the Atlantic. So so boats from the, the America are arriving in Liverpool. Now, my friend Kev told me that when he was learning guitar, you couldn't go to the shop and buy a Chuck Berry record. They weren't there. You know, this, this in the 50s until, you know, there was Elvis, and you may be able to get an Elvis record, but this hot stuff was hard to get hold of in England. And he said he would like you tune into the radio and you might catch something on the radio. And he would literally pick his guitar up and then try and learn the song. And then when the radio was done, it was gone. Yeah. You know, so if somebody had an album and he said once once we could get albums, you, you would go downtown holding your Bob Dylan album under your arm so people could see you were carrying the album. And that's that's the situation that Ringo's growing up in. They're, they're fascinated by American music and being in Liverpool at that time, they're able to have for sailors to come in and go, yeah, I've got this and really get some, some you know, guitar slim or something like this that no one would have, you know. Um, and it was a bit like me when I, when I was in the eighties, I amassed this huge jazz fusion vinyl collection, but none of the other musicians could get them. They, they, I went to up and down the country getting these albums. And I'd go through and I'd go, oh my God, Hymn to the Seventh Galaxy, they've actually got a copy, you know, and I'd, I'd buy it. And then people would come around and they'd be like to me, you know, have you got any Return to Forever? I've got the whole lot. What do you want to hear? You know? <laughs> and uh, people forget this, the, how this affects the history. So, so as much as Ringo's obsessed with American music, he's, an, he's a British musician that's grown up in that tradition, you know, and so the, the it's the it's the value of just trying to tease, you know. But don't you find our age group is the same? That trying to tease so much information from one record, stared at it for hours, as yeah. you say, memorize all the liner notes, which is a shame that that doesn't exist in digital music culture. But 
uh, you know, the visual of of the album cover telling you what the music's going to sound like, in a way, you know. Um, you know, Andy, be before we split, I wanted to talk about your channel because you have such a fascinating uh, YouTube channel and you cover so many interesting areas of music and you're so knowledgeable. Tell, tell my audience about your show because I, I think they should all check out Andy Edwards' channel. Well, I, I, and I hope they will and I hope they come over. Um, it's completely organic. I didn't plan to do it. Um, I, I've had a YouTube channel since 2013 which for me was just to put the odd drum video that nobody would look up, look at, you know, it was basically, you know, I'd have something and I'd stick it up. Um, I, and then when, um, when COVID happened, I started to put some drum lesson stuff up, um, you know, where I was talking about certain drum concepts and a few people looked at them. Uh, and then for fun, cause I was bored, I decided to rank the Mavish Nortra albums. And I did that totally for myself. And you've got to understand, I'm a, I'm a prog musician, so my love of fusion's always been a bit of a secret, you know. Um, um, so it, it's, I, I've never really played fusion. Um, I, I get booked to do jazz gigs every now and then, but I've never really played fusion. Uh, so there was no reason for me to do this. And I did it, and then a month later I went, well, the views are going up on this. This is really interesting. It just seemed to work. So I did another one on Weather Report. And that seemed to do really well. And, and at the start, it wasn't so much the views, it was the quality of the people that were visiting. Mm. And I found myself really enjoying the conversations with my subscribers that who were as knowledgeable, if not more knowledgeable than me. It's quite terrifying to, uh, you know, I've just done a, a thing on John Schofield and I know there's one point where I said, he is I mean, in an orchestral setting and I, I don't know whether he's done any other orchestral albums. And then, of course, my subscribers will go, well, he did this, he did that, you know. So, and I, and I enjoyed the, the chat. Sure. And, you know, chatting, for the first time, chatting to Fusion fans. It was as though there was all these Fusion fans everywhere, you know, desperate to talk, you know, about how good Bill Connors was and everyone forgets him. And, you know, that first Return to Forever album was amazing. And the one he did with Stanley Clark, that's, a, you know, and all that stuff that, I kept inside myself as well. I, you know, I got no one to talk to that, to the, all these things that have been in my mind, you know. Um, the second Tony Williams album is just as good as the first one. I don't know why people think the first one's so good. You know, all these things, that these conversations that you could have. Uh, and, and, and I think me chatting so much on it seems to have built, a, um, it's, it's like a little family. I, I almost feel like the, my subscribers are all in it together. Yeah. And, and, I, and I really feel that there's something so valuable that that I've known all my life is 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 how the value of this infusion, especially. I've always loved that more than anything else. Marriage, New Weather Report, Miles Davis, and I've always gone right through to the avant-garde, to the to the free jazz, and I've also been able to see the links to to all the sort of electronica that I like, you know, like Square Pusher. That I can, I that's my fusion. It's a big. And then all the prog behind it and all that type of stuff. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the feeling, I'm sure you'll get the same thing with your channel. It's growing, but the quality of the people that are looking at it. So I'm now getting messages. I don't, I don't you know, message off Scott Henderson on Saturday, you know, saying, you know, do I want to do an interview? And the bizarre thing is there's two musicians that really set me on this route. It's Billy Cobman and Rada Michael Walden. 
and then to get that message that someone said, you know, Neurada Michael Walters is trying to find you. Mm. Uh, and to realise he'd been watching the channel. And my love for Narada, which goes beyond just going, I quite like him and he has some good albums. Because one of the things I don't want to do on my channel is get into talking about, you know, minor major sevens or metric modulation. I don't want to go down. I do know that stuff to some extent. I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I knew, know that stuff. But I never wanted to get into that like other channels. I, I wanted to just show my just absolute love of the music and try and get that across. And, uh, and, and, and for Narada to get in touch and then do that interview, that was an incredible thing. I can't tell you how important that was to me um, because of, of all the drummers I've ever heard, Narada's got, a, there's something in his playing that um, it, it, he's connected to something. He's a virtuoso and he's got all the chops, but there's a magic in there I can't, I can never quite understand. And I was chatting to a number, of, a couple of my, um, the guys I lecture at college and they asked me about it. And I, I put on, I said, well, this is, this put lead boots on. And that drum fill comes in. I don't know how you play that. I don't even know what it is. You know, that, what is it that he's doing, you know? And then when he comes in, that, that doesn't sound like drumming to me. It just, it's just so magical. So, it, it's been like a full circle almost. And hearing that music as a kid, 40 years ago, and it's taken on me this journey, and I've been on stage with Robert Plant, you know, I've hung out with B.B. King and all these mad things I've done, you know, you know, touring around with John Bonham's kit in the back of my car and all the mad stuff that I've done, you know, all really came from the experience of hearing that music, like a rocket being put up you. And then for at the end, you know, not, hopefully not the end, but to then connect it with Narada uh, and for him to respond to my love of it. And that's, so I think that's another long answer, but that's what the YouTube channel is. It's just about my love of music, which has been there since, you know, the beginning of time. And it's an it's incredible thing. And then there's a lot of people out there that feel the same way as me, obviously. Same thing over here at the broadcast. We hear from all the super fans. We hear from the aficionados. We hear from the people who agree and love it. And we hear from the people that don't agree. So it's, you know, we have an ongoing discussion about the stuff we love. And I think same thing for my channel. It's, it's more about the love. It's about the history. It's about the inspiration. It's about the influence. It's about the, the crossbreeding and cross-pollinization. Um, not so much a technical thing, although, no. you know, it can go there. But, you know, you and I sh share this this love for a kind of attitude toward music making more than anything. But what's very interesting with you and me, Greg, is, is, is that there's, a, there's so many weird parallels because you're the Mahavishnu guy and I'm a Mahavishnu guy. But you've also played with, with a Genesis musical box and I play with IQ and IQ are just basically just the biggest band that loves Genesis in the history of all bands, you know. And, and, and then I've got, which I always thought was an anomaly for me, was this huge love of free jazz and that, that whole side of, of, of that as well. And, and, and so I, the, 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 I, I just find it fascinating, the parallels and how you could sort of just send a few messages that. And then now we're connected and, we're, and, and when I watch your channel, I, I just love your channel because the, it's the depth with, in which it goes. Because so often when, when I see interviews with my favorite people, you sort of can predict the questions and you know that they're going to ask them, you go, well, why do you even ask that question? Because what are they going to answer? You know, yeah, 
well, Mike, well, what, what's which was the favourite album you ever made of all the albums? Well, I love them all, you know. <laughs> you know, it's like they're like children to me. You know, it's which you 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 you've got the love and the knowledge. You 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 fascinate me because so often someone's talking about their career and they're mentioning artists and they can't quite remember. And you know, you always know. You've got an encyclopedic knowledge. I think way more than mine. You seem to have an encyclopedic knowledge of music. And I just love that, you know. I, you know. I have to quote my friend David Frick from Rolling Stone magazine, which is uh, something he said that crystallized for me. It's easy to remember all these little facts and, and figures when you love something. It's easy to remember to pick up something for your wife or your son because that's just part of the whole love thing. It's easy to to remember what year albums were made because that was a year of your life where it just blew you away, right? So I think that I do have a good memory, but also it's it's part partly like that it's become it becomes uh tattooed on my on my soul that when I heard Where Have I Known You Before, it was probably the first Chick Corea I ever heard. You know, I, I didn't I didn't start with Romantic Warrior like so many people. Um, yeah, and 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 also when you talk to to the guys and you get a chance to talk to the as we call them in America the cats, when you talk to the cats, don't bore them. You know, try to hit them with something that will. They'll, oh, no one ever asked me that before. Oh well, yeah, right? that's it. Yeah. You know, and, and then you know you're going to get into something because then they go, oh, you're not that guy. You're this other creepy guy who knows my <laughs> my hobbies and and my my reading list. You know, um, that's what I want to know. You know, I want to know what Andy Partridge reads. I want to know what Andy Partridge thinks of Fellini films. You know, I want to know. You're just like it, it. That's what I love. As soon as somebody starts to tell me that information. And it's, it's not just that sort of pure nosiness. It's because that's what makes the musician who they are. That, that There's a key to this. You know, I, I was watching an interview with Steve Howe and he, he said about how um, one of the parts on Close to the Edge, I think, is, is based upon the story of St. Bernadette. And I went, oh my God, that's really interesting. I thought, you know, you've probably never told anybody that. And that's a good question. Or they at least got to a point where that question's come out. And it sort of answers, you know, are they Christians or are they not? Because that was one of the interesting things I had about, yes, he said, no, we're very spiritual and we were inspired by the stories. And, and, and those stories are directly on close to the edge. And I thought, that's incredible. I, that's, that's fascinating, you know. And um, it, it, it's, um, I, I'm the same as you. It's, it comes from a love of it. Some, somebody, once said, somebody said to me the other day, they said, uh, how do you prepare? Do you listen to the albums? And I went, I don't own a record player. And they went, what? I said, I haven't got a record. All that vinyl behind me, I can't play any of it. I can't. And they said, well, what, what do you do then? I said, I pull the albums out. And I said, I've been carrying around these vinyl albums for 20 years. I haven't had a record player for about 15 years, 20 years. I just, it's been a, I nearly sold it all. I nearly thought, should I just sell all the vinyl? Because I, I, it's all on YouTube. I need it. And then suddenly now, because I've lost probably the same amount over the years. And sometimes I start looking for an album and uh, I can't find it and it's frustrating. And then I realize you've lost this. This has either been sold or you've left it at a house in a box, something, you know. 
but yeah and he said how how well how do you do this how do you remember everything on the album I go, that's going back 35 years this is i wasn't a drummer i was a music fan yeah and i did a ton of things because i was a music fan and one of them was buy records and the other one was play the drums <laughs> it, that's that's it it's it's uh it's as simple as that you know i i, I never had any lessons I didn't have any formal training. I didn't plan to play the drums. I didn't plan to play the guitar. Yeah, I, I would I would take my guitar up into the bedroom, put Charlie Parker records on, and then like a million monkeys at a typewriter, just play and try and get somewhere close to what that what I don't know what I was going for. I didn't know anything. That that's and, I, and as a teacher, that's a very strong part of of um of my teaching. Like you know, do you want to play fast? Well, if you want to play fast, you need to want to play fast because I was playing fast badly before I could play fast well. Right. For example, that's one of my concepts, you know, just, just mimic playing fast. Mimic it, you know, and then listen to John McLaughlin and, and, and ask yourself, why is he playing fast and why do you love it? You know, what, where, where's the energy coming from? Because there's an energy to playing fast. It's, it, there's an energy, you know, without it, it all sounds awful. And Holdsworth plays fast, but it's a different energy to McGoughlin playing fast. What's the, that, that's the thing. You want to play fast. Because that was my thing. I, 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 I you know, when I was younger, I'm, I'm still pretty fast now, but when I was younger doing the clinics, I was fast. And they wanted to say, my God, you're so fast, you know. But I was fast for a reason. <laughs> yeah, because I kept, I was listening to Dennis Chambers, you know. Yeah. You know, becoming Dennis Chambers, like, Stand like this, oh, just move your arms fast. You know, it was that that's where it all comes from. It comes from the music, yeah. It's the same for you, Greg. Yeah, it's a childlike passion for you know responding to things that you're that you love that you're excited about, of course. Yeah, you see, you know, Buddy Rich, and you think, how is that even physically possible? You know, uh, Vinnie Kaliuta, you know, Jack DeJanet, how, how does he? hit like that and and then what are, are those singles are those bounces like what what's going on there so you know we either study or we get the headphones on and we listen uh we're lucky enough to run into some of the guys and and ask them questions occasionally um so it's sort of a a fixed uh situation for me in that now i have the channel and i can ask them is that a single or is that double or, you know, or, or what, you know, what were you listening to? How important was Hendrix to you? Uh, this is the fun of it. This is the joy of it. And I love the, the historical perspective of your channel. Um, Andy, we, we could go on and on. I, I know, I, I, know. I, was, I, was, I was thinking, I, I could feel, I thought me and Greg are now going into the third phase of this seven hour interview, if we're not careful. I could see you just maneuvering into it and my brain just went clicking in. And I thought, yeah, I've got an answer for this. And this is an interesting thing you're going into. No. We haven't even talked drums. That's what I was just thinking. God, me and Greg haven't even talked drums. And I thought, I, I, I really want to ask you about drumming because you're a virtuoso drummer. And I thought, here I am. I've spoken so much to you. And I just want to know how, you know. So, yeah, there's there's more to be said, you know. I, I just fascinating so yeah let, let's let's not go down there or maybe maybe not this time but you're going to come back and i'm certainly going to kind of be on your show we, we've discussed yeah. that we'll we'll do a zappa chat um you know people should check out andy edwards channel on youtube and uh he's a fascinating musicologist and, and a great musician 
and I'm always happy to chat with him and we have so much in common and we are going to do a drum talk for drum sure. Talk. Um, and, and get it. <laughs> well, Rhapsody. yeah, I can't play him, but I like the sound. <laughs> a triple fluff fluff. I don't know. Yeah. I, <laughs> the, the rudiments from hell from Bozio. Um, yeah. Yeah, and 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 please uh, like and subscribe us if if you're interested. We also have Patreon going now if if you want to help support us, and we'll have fascinating people like Andy on the show and uh, and more. So you've got I, Bev Bevan coming up soon, haven't you? Is that right? And we, do, we are going to have Bev Bevan from ELO. Oh. Thanks to Andy, and uh, we're going to have so many other cool figures. Guys from the Zappa Band are coming up. So please continue to watch and, and, and we'll, we will entertain. So thank you for coming. My thanks to my guest, Andy Edwards. You're the best, Andy. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Everybody, see you next time.